0: Good morning. Good morning, a couple weeks ago Doug texted me and asked if I could uh, come down here and preach today. I don't think he knew at that time his voice was going to be as bad a shape as it is, but uh, we were thankful for the opportunity. It's always a pleasure to come down here, get to be on East Campus, It uh, gives me a little bit of a break from my normal routines on Central Campus. But uh, beyond that, we really enjoy being here, uh, you've got a great congregation. And it's just wonderful to uh, see the worship, the life, the excitement in your people. Um, Doug asked if I would speak on marriage, that's what it was assigned, from Ephesians chapter 5 today. Now, I don't know if a lot of you are aware, but uh, my wife, Ione, and I, we spend probably the majority of our week, uh, week in, week out, doing premarital and marital counseling. So we get to see both ends. Of the marital spectrum, uh, we get all those young, starry-eyed couples that come in, usually somewhere in their 20s, and they're so in love, and they just think this is going to be wonderful, and they just enjoy going through the process of talking about, you know, uh, communication, conflict resolution, finances, all that kind of stuff. But then we do also marriage counseling, and uh, let's just say the honeymoon is over, you know. Uh, we're, we're sitting there in the front of uh, two people, usually one of which, if not both, are incredibly angry at the other, and they really don't want to be married anymore. And so we try, by the grace of God, uh, to use the gifts that He's given us to help them see and understand what it is that has brought them to this point. And part of that is always a time in the Word. And specifically, we. Uh, pretty regularly go to Ephesians chapter 5. Now, I remember those days. You know, I, I think I first time I saw Ione, I was 12 years old. She came to a Sunday school class. I'd been invited to this uh, junior high class uh, by a friend. And Ione came in with some other high school students. I think, what were you, 27 at the time? <laughs> Well, she's older than me. I don't remember exactly how many years, but uh, anyway, they were playing the guitar and doing the worship music for us, and I was just like, "Wow, you know, that is a woman. You know, exciting." <laughs> and of course, she didn't know who I was, and I think she is probably grateful that she didn't really pay any attention to me. But uh, as time went on, and I got, I became a believer, and I got more involved with the youth group and everything. Uh, the first person that really sat with me. I came to the high school youth group, and I didn't know really anybody except for a neighbor, and he was not the friendliest of guys. He had become a believer himself, and we really hadn't talked in like two years. But he says, Dave, why don't you come to youth group with me? So I came, and then this vision of beauty came and sat next to me and started asking me questions. What do you like in school? Why are you here, blah, 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 blah. And, you know, this is really the first time own and I had a face-to-face conversation. Well, that was it. I was smitten. And I went home and told my brother, I said, you know, it would be so cool, just spiritually speaking, and then other issues aside, if I could start dating Ion. And he's like, dude, she's four years older than you. She's a pastor's daughter. You're a brand new Christian. Who are you? And I was like, yeah, that's true. And then he said, let's pray about it. I said, pray about it. And he goes, yeah, let's ask God. And just every night, let's just pray together and see what God's will is. So time went on, I don't know how many years, but uh, I watched Ione date this guy, then this guy, then this guy. And little by little, she started talking to me about these dating relationships, never suspecting that I was probably operating on ulterior motives. You know, I was trying to like, this guy is really not great, you know. <laughs> let's not go that route, you know. And, uh, and over time, we became best friends, though we weren't dating. And then it happened. My birthday night, going into my senior year, and I'd been waiting on God. I didn't know much about prayer. I just knew that God, if I prayed to him about it, he was supposed to do something, and I didn't know what that was. But on that very night, own and I stayed up very late talking, and she said, Dave, what would you say if I told you that I liked you? And I'm kind of like, liked me? Like, what do you mean by like me, you know? (laughs) And she's like, you know, like you. And I'm like, cool. Now, my memory of that (laughs) is, what would you say if I told you that we were going to get married? Because I thought this was God's confirmation. I mean, the clouds could have opened... And God himself appeared and said, this is it. This is the answer to your prayers. But I also said I was a little more gentle than that. I didn't quite go to that level that night. I'm not sure. But then we dated for five years, got married, then the rest is history. Been married 37 years. I remember those feelings so well. But here's the truth of it. When we look at the word of God, those feelings are exciting. They're awesome. But marriage scripturally, is less to do about feelings of love, it is far more about covenant commitment. And that's where Paul is sitting this morning. He's not negating those feelings of love, but to be honest, first century marriages knew nothing about a courtship process. They didn't understand uh, the American dating scene. Now, there were no notes exchanged, no asking your friend to see if that person likes you, and all the little games that junior hires play. Uh, It's just flat-out marriage. So let's take a look at what Paul has to say this morning. We're gonna jump right into chapter five. And most people, when they exegete the marriage passage here, will jump into chapter five, verse 22. And as you go to a lot of weddings, you'll hear those verses repeated and read. But I'm gonna go back, because I don't think you can understand 22 and what follows unless you start at verse 15, right? Now the book of Ephesians, is there a better book in the New Testament? I mean, maybe Romans. But this is Paul's, in my opinion's, masterpiece, right, for Christian living. Chapter one, where Paul is describing who the Father, who the Son, and who the Holy Spirit are, and what they have done for us. It's like, it's like crack cocaine. I mean, you can't get enough of it. You're just like, Wow, chosen from the foundation of the world. I'm going to bless you with all spiritual blessings that your inheritance is what? It's heaven. The Holy Spirit is sealing me for all time. Good grief. What a great deal. And then Paul just kind of mounts his argument through chapters 1, 2, and 3, bleeds into 4. He gets to 5 and 6, and he's going to answer the question, so what? So God has done all these great things. So what? By the time we get to verse 15, he is saying this, and I love these verbs here, look, look carefully. The word there in the original to look is a command, it's an imperative. You don't have any choice if you're a believer here this morning than to do what the Lord is saying through Paul's words here. Look carefully then how you walk. Why the then? The then is obviously a temporal reference to what's come before, and what's come before is the very graphic descriptions of what it's taken the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to do in order for you and I to be believers. Look carefully then how you walk. You could use another word for walk, like live, not as unwise, but as wise. And Paul sets up a series of three. Uh, Nots and buts. Not as unwise, but as wise. Uh, Not drunk with the wine, but filled with the Spirit, so on. Um, He just doesn't want you to be foolish, but instead understand what the will of God is. So it's not, but, not, but, not, but. And he's building up to the point and saying, all right, so how do we treat each other? You come to church, you see believers in the workplace, you go to a different church and visit. How should we treat each other? And he says, do this. Address one another, verse 19, in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing and making melody. Now how many of you, when you came in here this morning, greeted one another with songs, spiritual songs and psalms? No one? You didn't come singing? It's kind of fallen into that greet one another with a holy kiss as far as usage in the Christian church. We just don't do that. But you get the idea. Paul is saying, Just celebrate each other. Don't come in here in conflict. Don't come in here angry. Don't be about yourself. Be about others. Giving thanks, verse 20, always, and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And here's the crucial one for the verses we're looking at today. Verse 21, submitting to one another, right? Submitting to one another in the presence of Christ. What does that mean, submitting? That means that before you were a believer, you had something making decisions for you. Let's just imagine there's a big circle here, and you have the letter I in there. I was making decisions for Dave. So what I did, how I reacted to people, uh, how I interpreted life, um, what my life goals would be, It was Dave, 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 Dave was making decisions. Once you become a believer, you remove that I and what do you put there instead? Jesus, right? JC. He's making these decisions for me now. So submission means that I'm no longer going to operate the way that I used to. I'm a new creature in Christ. Paul has done an excellent job of laying out that argument in the first few chapters of this book. Submitting (coughs) to one another out of reverence for Christ. Because Jesus does the same thing for you and me. Jesus, if you remember, and it says that we were chosen from the foundation of the world. It was part of the pre-creation covenant between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit that Jesus was going to be sent as the Son of God to live a perfect life as a man that he would go to that cross and that my sins and your sins would be nailed to that cross, the penalty removed forever, and that he would die, he would be resurrected, and he would sit at the right hand of the Father. And essentially, ever since that time, we, the church, his bride, is waiting for that return so that we can go join him. So, Paul says, since you understand this, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So, I get mad at people. I do this all the time. Uh, You know, I I can get so frustrated in situations. I don't know if you're like this or not. And I would like to say, well, it's just those kind of touchy things like the way other people are driving. You know, I'm honking my horn, or I'm just, you know, I learned real quick living in Iowa City people don't honk at one another. It must be a Nebraska thing. We just like, you know, get moving. You know, here people get really upset if you do that. So we don't do that. But still, it's worse than that. I can get really angry, frustrated, and I no longer have the right to do that. That's what Paul was saying here. Submit to one another in reverence. Whatever it is that's getting in the way of Jesus Christ operating your life, get rid of it submit just as Jesus did. Jesus came, Philippians 2, took upon himself the form of a man, right? And he died on that cross. What else could God do? He's saying to us as human beings who have saved people, who have listened to the gospel, and we've taken it into our hearts to do the same thing. I'm willing to die for each of you in here. We ought to have a part of our church service where people just kind of make that recommitment every week. Hi, I'm Dave, and I'm willing to die for John McHale back there. I'm willing to die for anybody else that's sitting in here. That's what it means. Have submission, reverence for one another. Jesus said no less. So now that we understand that, we are now prepared to actually look at what this means for marriage. And what's going to happen in the rest of this epistle of Ephesians is Paul's going to lay out what is typically referred to by theologians as the house codes. He's going to talk about marriage. So he's saying, Dave, look at your wife. I got a word for you. Because of what Jesus did for us, this is going to tremendously affect how you and your wife get along. Dave, in chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, take a look at your daughter. Bethany sitting here, you know, this is tremendously going to change how you and I get along and what we do because of what Jesus did. Dave, take a look at Mike Cronin, my servant. You know, we have this master-servant relationship. You did sign up for that, right? Right. And that's going to tremendously change how I, now you can imagine on Paul's day in Asia Minor, in Ephesus, this is not in the Holy Land. So most of his converts are not necessarily Jewish people. And as the church grows, more and more people from secular society are coming into the church every day. And Paul feels it's necessary to put it in black and white as to what this means. So let's take a look at marriage at this time period. Who are we dealing with here? For women in this time period in Asia Minor, Most women were married between ages 12 and 17. Seems very young, doesn't it? 12 and 17. Guys were typically 10 to 15 years older. They had already established themselves in business. They had a home. They were ready to take care of their bride. But there was no love arrangement. There was no dating time. What happened is the parents, were seeking to make good marital arrangements, that would benefit not only their daughter but also the family as a whole. So they would be looking for the guy that could best provide. So all of a sudden you're a young woman. Let's say that you're 15. You find yourself in a marriage. You don't know the guy very well. Your whole job is to produce offspring. You are supposed to bear children for this man so that his lineage can continue and that's about it you take care of the home if he's a wealthy man you may have people there to do that homework for you otherwise this is your life now when they became a believer they heard this gospel that Paul is talking about and they come to Christ and then they join the church they come to the local house where the church is meeting and they hear what the pastor says In Jesus Christ, all are free, right? In Jesus Christ, you are a new citizen. You are a citizen of heaven. Wow, that's great. Does this mean I can get out of this abominable relationship with this man? It's understandable. Great question. (coughs) Paul's comeback is this. Wives, verse 22. Submit. To your husbands, as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its Savior. The church is his body and is himself its Savior. Hard words. You mean I'm supposed to submit to this guy? In another place, in a different epistle, Paul says this to the, uh, to the wife who's come to the Lord don't leave your spouse just because he's an unbeliever. It's because of your relationship that that person may experience sanctification. In other words, it's because of your relationship. You're a believer. And because of your walk with Christ, your non-believing spouse may come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. You may be that person in their life. Here, back in Ephesians, he's using that word again, submit. He just used it in 521. Let's submit to one another in the church. Now he's saying specifically, wives, submit to your husband. Now, people trip all over this word. I don't know how many times I've heard sermons where people are trying to be really, uh, you know, up to date and saying, we don't like this. I've actually had people at weddings say, we want you to read Ephesians 5 for us in the wedding ceremony, but drop that word submit. We don't want that. Can we think of some other way to put this? It's hard. It's an actually an excellent translation of the original Greek word in English. Submit. All, all it means is I'm gonna put your interests above mine. I'm gonna put your interests above mine. Why? Not because I'm such a great husband. Because face it, between the, if I'm a first century man and I'm standing here, wife submit, children submit, servant, you submit, all of you submit, You know, I love this. This is great, right? But Paul very quickly is going to show us, no, all these cords of submission tie together and everybody submits to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ submits to the Father. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night before he was arrested, his prayer, Father, let this cup pass from me. And then he submits, not my will, but your will be done. And for some reason, call him crazy, Jesus thinks that because he was willing to do that kind of submission, he has the right to ask you and I to also submit in our family relationships. So wives, submit to your husbands in the Lord. Now, I just want to put this caveat in there. This is not saying women submit to men. This is speaking of a familial relationship. Wives, submit to your husbands. Very specific wording there. There's other words for women and men that could have been used here. That's not what Paul wants. And then he gives that explanation. For the husband is the head of the wife, (coughs) even as Christ is the head of the church. Then he jumps on the men. If we flip over to verse 25, Now, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? Yeah. He died for the church. He prepared the church. He gave everything for the church. If you ever want to answer that question, how did Christ love the church, I think you're supposed to get an image of Christ on that cross on that dark day, on the Skull Mountain, people jeering him, Roman soldiers gambling for his cloak, His followers, having largely deserted him, and he wanted to do that to get to the point where he could say, it is finished, so that he could win salvation for us. Husbands, love your wives in the same way. Now, guys, think for a second this morning. (coughs) What is more than that. What does your wife need, want, demand? What do your children need, want, demand that would rise above what Christ did for us? Can you think of anything? I've been married for many years. I've raised three girls. Uh, We've had conflict. We have our differences, but I don't recall ever even becoming close to being required to give my life for any one of them. I don't requir- remember any time being required to be publicly humiliated because of my relationship with them. <clears throat> and yet, time after time, we sit in marriage counseling and we hear from couples, But a lot of times from husbands, this is not fulfilling. This isn't good for me. And my key word, which I have now called a cult, is I am not happy. There is a cult of happiness in this country, right? There really is. People think that the whole reason that we're living, that God put us on this earth, is to be happy. And that just flat out isn't the case. Now, you, you, want, you want to, because of Sunday school and youth group, to not really say that too often. Hey, kids, it's great to have you in Sunday school this morning. God doesn't want you to be happy. Stop it. <laughs> Is everybody sad? Great, you know. No, and we don't want to say that in marriages or parent children relationships. In work relationships, we don't necessarily have that master servant thing going on, but we work for bosses, right? We get frustrated with them we're supposed to submit to them as well. But it's not about the feelings. It's about a covenant relationship. That covenant that I just referenced a little while ago from Ephesians chapter 1, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, decided a long time ago that despite your sin, my sin, Romans 5, remember, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, no matter what we've done, no matter how horrible we've been, decided to come and die for us. He submitted to the Father's will. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that he gave us his only begotten son. We are definitely given the picture in the New Testament that Jesus was sent by the Father to experience all that he experienced. When we get married, we stand before witnesses, our friends and family typically. And we make vows. You know, for better or worse, you know, to be sick, you know, to be a schmuck, (laughs) to cheat. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Dave, you just crossed the line, you know. And then all of a sudden we go back to the book of Hosea. I don't have time to go through that this morning, but check that one out, Hosea and Gomer, and what God's attitude is about marriage in that regard. But... I am supposed to cherish this woman. It has nothing to do with what her response is to me. It doesn't matter if she treats me wonderfully. It doesn't matter if she sees to my needs. It doesn't matter what she does. I am supposed to love her, just like Christ loves his church. I don't know if any of you have done an inventory recently on your spirituality but can anybody in here say, well, you know, I've gone about three years now without committing one single sin. <laughs> I had a guy tell me that one time. Yep, yeah, I've done that. And then we talked to his wife, and this is serious. <laughs> and she filled us in on some much you know, needed gaps in there. Now, of course he's sinned, you know. It doesn't matter when your children, how they're behaving. I'm going to love you. There's nothing Bethany could do for me to stop being the godly father that Paul calls me to be. My approach to her may change. I may gain wisdom in my methodology of being a parent, but I will never stop loving her. And it doesn't matter what my boss does or those who are in supervision over me. I will submit to them. And then Paul goes through a quite lengthy theological explanation as why this is true, and I'll just zip through this real quick. In the same way, I'm going to drop down here to verse 28. Husbands would love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Because you remember, what? Husband and wife, (coughs) they become one. Uh, And he, he, in verse 30, repeats that. This is a creation covenant. In verse 30. Therefore, a man shall leave his father, this is from Genesis 2, and mother, and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. Jesus repeats this verse as well in the Gospels. Paul is repeating this. Paul's whole rationale here is not for you to measure the fulfillment of your relationships. But his whole point here is that you have been fulfilled already in a relationship with Jesus Christ. You need nothing else. There's absolutely nothing else that you need. He's done it all for you. If you have a great wife, you have a great child, a great servant, God bless you. Man, that's like gravy, right? You know, I had a friend who used to always say, yeah, all that and a bag of chips. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, that is wonderful. But I can tell you, there are a lot of people walking around out there who are not in such relationships. I know a lot of women that are in non-Christian marriages, and I know some men, And and it's just horrible. I had a good friend that his wife had not had sexual relations with him for like 20 years. And he says, I could divorce her, but Christ fills me. Even in that area, Christ fills me. Paul basically is saying, there is no way that we have the right to break a covenant. Now, I'm gonna put a little blurb on this. I know there are some people involved in physically damaging relationships, and no one's asking you to stay in there and get your face pounded in, or possibly even get killed, as does happen. We've seen that, too. But Paul doesn't say that you can change your attitude towards your spouse, get to a point of safety, please. But you gotta go to the Father, because this is a covenant. And it's a covenant not based upon my promise, I own's promise. It's a covenant that is vertical. It is between my God and me. And he says this for this reason. And then he says this, and this is going to be the clincher on this part of the scriptures. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. In the Old Testament, you could get a divorce easily, all you had to do was present a writ before the elders. Before a priest, and if it was justified, he would say, You're done. Marriage is over. It didn't take a whole lot. Jesus made it very clear that's not the way it was supposed to be. That was not God's intention. In the New Testament now, we've come to this. We have seen what Jesus did. In the Old Testament, they had to look forward. I think there's a Messiah coming. I'm trusting that he's going to be here, he's going to atone for sin be a propitiation for our sin. He's going to redeem us. The Son of God, God himself, communicating the will of the Father to us through covenant, through Hesed, just eternal love. In the New Testament, we can look back at that and say, it's been done. It's accomplished. At this point now, when I get married, I need to understand that my marriage should be a walking, visible metaphor for that same relationship between Jesus and you and I. When people see Iona and I, it's my job as a husband to love her so much that they see my sacrificial spirit with her, that I love my daughter so much that I'm doing everything I can for her within the bounds that God has established for me. But those covenant bonds will never be broken if it's up to me. There is no reason for that to happen. Russ Moore has written a book called The Storm Toss Family. I'm going to close with this. And in it, he has a chapter in which he says, marriage is spiritual warfare. And it is. Think about this. if all these things that I've just said about covenant relationship, God establishing things from the beginning of time, we could also go back to the beginning of time and see the point where Satan is expelled from heaven He's rebelled against his God. He winds up in the garden in Genesis, and his whole goal is to create enmity between the man and the woman, but especially between them and their God, their creator. And he's successful. It doesn't take a lot of looking around to see that there's something drastically wrong with our universe. It's not gone the way that God initially created it to go. We call that the fall. Secondly, because it is a fall, every one of us who gets married and stands up and makes those vows, we are creating a dysfunctional family, because we both come from that original family of Adam, according to Romans 4, right? We are children of wrath, but we're coming together in the spirit of hope and faith that our new life in Jesus Christ will make a difference. And I pray that it's so. But we should not be surprised at all when that old person, that old man, as Paul calls him, makes an appearance in our marriages, in our child-parent relationships, in our work-employee relationships, and we see all too clearly that we're not perfect and that the people that we're in relationship with are not perfect as well. But then it even gets more difficult, because thirdly, Satan hates marriage. He hates it. And the reason he hates it is not because he hates marriage just for the sake of marriage. He hates it because God loves it. It is God's creation. It's one of the first covenantal acts of the Lord when he put man and woman together. Satan wants to break that apart. That's an amazing thing. So we should be very wise. There's no amount of intelligence or self-will that is going to make you have a great marriage. It just doesn't work out of your own flesh. You have to continually come back to this submission line and turn it around and submit to Christ and let him fulfill you for you to make it through any of these relationships with your head on straight, right? I love the way that... uh, Russ ends that chapter, and I'll just close with this. He says that the life that we live, the Christian life, is not going to end in the silence of the casket, but in the clinking of glasses. Not in a funeral, but in a wedding feast. Right? Your wedding, your marriage, is also a foreteller of another marriage ceremony that we're all going to go to. And I'm afraid you have no determination on which seats you get at the table. If you go there and mad at your husband or your wife, you can't say, well, I don't want to sit next to him. I don't want to sit next to her. I'll just sit across the table, down 20 people. No, the whole focus is gonna be on Christ. Revelation chapter 19, right? And so right now, as we live our lives. That's where our whole focus should be. If we're involved in a spiritual warfare, Paul is brilliant because at the end of this book, what happens in chapter 6? He says, yes, you're involved in spiritual warfare. Therefore, put on the whole armor of God. You can't be married. You can't be a parent. You can't be an employee in your own strength. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. Put on that helmet. Pick up that sword of truth. Go to battle every day. I'm fighting for my marriage. I'm fighting for my parenting, I'm fighting for my work relationships, and every time I go to prayer with God as God, reveal to me today where Dave is seeping through, where Dave is coming through and causing conflict, causing problems, because I don't want that to be the case. May only Jesus Christ come through us in our marriages, in our families, in our work relationships. That is submission. That is the point of Ephesians chapter 1, right? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. I thank you for your word. It's so powerful, Lord. To be in relationship with you is the only thing that qualifies us to be in relationship with others, at least with any hope of success. Father, may we be humble. May we be full of mercy and grace. May we recognize your spirit fills us when we're able to love like you love when we're able to forgive like you forgive. God bless these marriages. Bless these families in this church. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.